On this episode of the Verso podcast, we're focusing on Emma Dowling's new book, The Care Crisis, published in January and part of our book club selections for the month. In this groundbreaking book, Emma Dowling charts the multifaceted nature of care in the modern world, from the mantras of self-care and what they tell us about our anxieties, to the state of the social care system. She examines the relations of power that play profitability and care off against one another, exposing the devastating impact of financialization and austerity. In this episode, we're joined by Amelia Horgan, a writer and researcher interested in contemporary work practices and the philosophy of work, as well as Emma Dowling herself, who's in conversation with the writer, Rachel Holmes. But to start us off, here's Rosie Warren, the book's editor, to give us the backstory of how the book came into being. This book has been more than five years in the making. Emma was actually perhaps the very first author I met with after I got hired at Verso. I wouldn't like to add up all the hours that we've spent talking about the project, working out how to approach the book, what should go into it, what shouldn't, a much more important and harder set of decisions, and how to do justice to such an important but mammoth topic, the crisis of care. What resulted from Emma's five years of hard work is an exceptional book. It documents not only the consequences of a decade of austerity in Britain, but offers a fresh lens through which to understand the rise of neoliberalism and its mode of governance. She examines how care is organised and how it's been reorganised over the last several decades, creating global care chains, resulting in what she calls the care fix. For a book that makes such an innovative theoretical move, it's also highly readable. It documents not only the finances of the reorganisation of care, but also the impact on the front lines. The book weaves together narratives of various forms of care workers, from striking junior doctors to home care workers and parents of adult dependents. In the COVID-19 era, it's a devastating assessment of a system of care already buckling under strain, an underfunded public sector, a growing private sector organised for profit, unfit to meet care needs, or entirely unpaid in people's homes. And if you won't take it from me, here's Sylvia Federici. Quote, The care crisis is unique in threading together the many different sites across society where paid and unpaid caring takes place. The book demonstrates how a long-standing subjugation of caring bodies and feelings is entering a new phase. With a focus on the UK context and with relevance to debates beyond it, Emma Dowling offers a powerful analysis of the politics and economics of care, making evident the urgent need to transform the material conditions of our lives. End quote. And here's Emma from the introduction. In the face of crisis and in light of the limits or impasses it faces, one mechanism available to a capitalist economy is to reorganise to overcome crises of profitability. Scholars such as the geographer David Harvey or the sociologist Beverly Silver, terming such forms of reorganisation a fix, have analysed the ways in which capitalist production undertakes spatial, technological, organisational or financial fixes to solve the pressures of maintaining profitability we can apply the analogy of the fix to the changing dynamics of care in society and the way that care is being reorganised in the face of both an economic and a care crisis. Changes in the ways in which goods and services are produced and consumed are linked to the ways in which care is provided, whether it be in families, partnerships, friendships, neighbourhoods and communities, by a welfare state or through the market in commodified forms. A care fix entails the management of the care crisis in ways that resolve nothing definitely, but merely displace the crisis, thereby perpetuating the structural reflex of capitalist economies to offload the cost of care to unpaid sectors of society. Care fixes lie at the heart of the current reorganisation of the relations of production, reproduction and care. 
Next, Emma Dowling, author of The Care Crisis, is joined by Rachel Holmes, whose many books include Eleanor Marks, A Life, as well as Natural Born Rebel, a biography of Sylvia Pankhurst, recently published by Bloomsbury. You can find details of how to purchase these books, as well as The Care Crisis, in the episode notes. I'm speaking uh, with you today from London, and, and you're in Vienna. And there's a fair amount to conjure with, even in, in terms of the, the disparities and, and increased post-Brexit distances between us uh, in that context. Um, it's a salutary pleasure to be talking to you uh, about your really important new book, uh, just published by Verso, The Care Crisis, What Caused It and How Can We End It? And it's informative, it's forensic, and it's devastating in many ways. But that's not to say that it, that, um, that's not to put, put off anybody reading it, uh, because it's for all the right reasons. And what I think is so vital and engaging is that it's analytic, it's personal, and human, but it's also precise. And you have this analysis and and deconstruction, a, a detailed analysis of the privatization of public health care and the financial in, financialization instruments that have been and are being deployed to siphon off public money, our money, our taxes, our labor, and even the exploitation of our compassion and caring into private pockets to make the already wealthy even richer. So Emma, let's begin with your motivation for writing this book. Uh, it emerged, as, as you describe, out of a care crisis largely born of something called austerity. And it would have been urgent and relevant even without the global the pandemic that now intervenes with its publication, tragically. So to take us back to your motivation where you began and where you feel the work is positioned now having been published in this context which you couldn't foresee others could have foreseen and predicted but you couldn't thanks very much rachel and and thanks also for um well you're quite moving words about about the the book i mean i guess that's kind of uh, part of the point really isn't it that care touches us and touches our lives in so many ways um and I think when I began working on the book in 2015, the motivation was really to make visible the sort of growing care crisis that was that was affecting more and more people, especially after the global financial crisis. And as you said, also particularly with the austerity measures that that came in. Um, and it was really to sort of make visible uh, or to help make visible what was what was going on and the sort of crisis experience for, for many people that wasn't really being being spoken about. And so I set out to speak to different people who had caring roles or who were receiving care in, in some way, caring for loved ones and feeling on their own, junior doctors on strike over the devaluation of their work, migrant domestic workers struggling for recognition, people working in care homes facing the effects of privatisation, social workers on the front lines of austerity, but also volunteers helping refugees and challenging who is cared for and, and who isn't. And I wanted to make visible these realities and sort of join up the dots between them and link them up to a bigger picture. Mm. And I was also 
and this is perhaps also really come, maybe comes or hopefully comes out in the book, I was becoming really increasingly frustrated also with the sort of calls for the need for us all to be more empathetic and 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 to have to be more compassionate and have a compassionate. Uh, uh, politics and be kinder to one another and to ourselves and I kept coming back to the point that the exhaustion or depletion of society's care resources as academics might put it is not going to be solved by moral imperatives or by changing individual behavior instead we really need to drill down into the systemic problems and the kind of structural conditions that are preventing care from, from really from from being given and and in adequate ways in so many different areas of society and so I also wanted to show that while it feels like we're living in an increasingly careless society and we criticize individualism we criticize competition and selfishness actually people haven't stopped caring about and for one another and so the question became, well, whose responsibility is it then to care and whose compassion and whose sense of responsibility are we relying on? Um, and I was also becoming more and more attentive to the ideas of sort of, uh, that were arising around kind of caring capitalism and the idea that markets and finance could be put to good use, this sort of idea of doing well by, by doing good. So uh, suspicious about that, I wanted to investigate what was happening there. So I guess all in all, the motivation, or maybe to say the question that motivates the book is what does the economy actually look like when we look at it from the perspective of care? Because if you think normally, you know, GDP, markets, investors, trade, these are the kind of terms in which we talk about the, our economy. And a lot of time we, we, you know, people are obsessed with, with economic growth and getting the economy back on track. And I wanted to, to take a step back and say, well, what does this economy actually look like when we look at it from the perspective of care and then of course when I by the time I'd finished the book I was sort of finishing the final bits of the the going over the manuscript when Covid uh, broke out and 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 so the effects of austerity and cuts were, were already there rising living costs the crisis in the care sector Brexit and and the coronavirus crisis really sort of brought it brought it to a head and and I guess the book is is a kind of well, it's, it sort of gives you the backdrop. It it's, it's gives you the explanation mm. for why why we're in the situation that, that we're in. I'd say that's mm. hopefully the, a contribution that the book can make. And it most absolutely certainly does. And that, as you describe it, what it does achieve, making visible the, indivi- the invisible, um, the, the individuals, the people, the carers, you know, those who give care and those who receive it. And actually that's, that's all of us, really. I mean, those are those are those are um, changing positions in every different aspect of our lives. So, in that sense, I feel that you really are the sort of modern cartographer. You know, giving us a, a topography of that crisis prompted by austerity, which we're now paying for to rescue it from itself. And it's that sort of you know eating its own tail. Um, and as you, and and what you do, I think, is define. At the economy of care behind behind the the headlines, taking that taking that proposition and 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 having set up and laid out how you you describe and explore this economy of care. And as I say, I understand it so much better now from having read your book. I'm interested to know how you would describe the conceptual arch of the book to readers and and some of the theoretical lineages that you draw on and develop. Your your bibliography and notes 
uh, like all the best books, tell their own narrative of of the enormously diverse and wide ranging sources you've explored and 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 assimilated. You know, across a whole range of different sources and data. And there's equally a broader framework of philosophy and ethics, not necessarily directly referenced, but you know, but influencing the instruments you use to interpret the contemporary crisis. And so the experience for a reader is that you put financial reporting from organisations themselves, like Goldman Sachs, for example, into direct testimonials and interviews based on one-to-one interviewing methodologies with people who have been at the other end of that. So just tell us a bit about how you describe that conceptual arch of the book and some of those theoretical lineages. I guess one one of the things that I've always tried to do in my thinking and in my writing or something that has always really intrigued me, and possibly this comes out of a kind of personal biography also of of, um, of not only working in a university context, but also having um, done political work as an activist, and 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 moving in and out of sort of different different spheres and spaces. And I've I've always wanted to sort of make the connections across different spheres of society. Um, and with this book, obviously, different areas of of care, and particularly where they're not normally or necessarily brought together and and thought together and and this is part of the message of the of the book is of course what comes out of and is a sort of long-standing demand of feminist um, movements and also feminist theorizing is to think across the paid and unpaid dimensions of work and that's really quite key in the uh, in the book is sort of moving back and forth also showing not only that the, these two worlds go together the sort of unpaid unpaid world of um, of caring in the home and in our communities and neighborhoods um, but then also the sort of paid dimensions of, of professional professional care, but also how that boundary also shifts and moves over over time. You know what what's paid for and 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 what's uh, what work is not. Um, so I guess part of the message is this precisely thinking across boundaries and making connections where they're not where they're not normally made. Um, and that in the book, that's about sort of making making sense of how care cross cuts our lives. Um, but I also wanted to convey the level of everyday experience and what care means to people in ways that I hope would enable readers to identify and or empathise. I think that's that's sort of uh, important to me. And, and with that, and unpick some of the thorny questions of what care means philosophically and how it intersects with politics and and, and economics. So it's sort of these these different levels trying to work together. On the one hand, the, the everyday level of experience and the kind of philosophical questions of, of what what care means, what it can mean, um, and and then these questions of, of politics and and economics. And all the while, of course, uh, the book is informed by um, by women's movements, by feminist movements, by anti-racist movements, um, and also by the kind of uh, work that's been done and sort of 
on trying to understand capitalism and class relations um, in capitalism and how inequality really works and, and how our economy functions to re reproduce that inequality. What I wanted to do was allow the interviews to to tell a story and to to provide a kind of way through the through the book and a sort of narrative through the book. But I also wanted to provide hard evidence for the arguments that I was making in terms of academic research and also in terms of um, reports from various um, think tanks and uh, NGOs and, and and other kinds government of bodies finance, and govern, government yeah. finance etc. I mean there's so there's so many ways into this Emma but just to just to, to <clears throat> pause on that um, can you just say a little bit about um, about how you selected your respondents and how you conducted those interviews. Obviously, for, for, for trained sociologists like yourself, I mean, that, that's a familiar terrain, but perhaps for those of us who are coming to it as, as lay readers, uh, it's always interesting to know how those relationships are established and, and how they work. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, well, I think... Um one of the well, one of the things about how how that works is well there's different ways of going about it i guess um but the way that i went about it was that i um i thought about sort of the areas that i that i wanted to cover and and got in touch with people in 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 lots of different ways actually so for example the junior doctors that i spoke to i went down to the picket line <laughs> and asked people um if they would be uh, if they would like to to speak to me about what their struggles and the, and the strike um, and in other cases uh, I got in touch with people via organizations or through uh, personal contacts or through um, sort of various ways that that one would might encounter also care and, and care work in in one's life so I think I also write this in, in the introduction you sort of immerse yourself really in in the issue and and especially when you write a write a book on something that touches everybody's lives you also find yourself just mentioning that you're doing this that you're doing this work and people will talk to you and they will tell you about about their um, about their experiences and of course it's also always going on in in, in the news in 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 media so so it's really kind of charting a way through that. And, and I think with the interviews, I wanted on the one hand for people to talk about what it means for them to, to care and also to be cared for, but mostly to care. Um, and also just to, to tell their, their version of events, so to speak, like their, their story. So that, um, that was really what, what I wanted uh, to do. And I think that's also the way that the, the, those interviews find their way. And I did a lot more interviews, but those ones that, that are in the book find their way into the book as sort of vignettes of uh, stories um, about, uh, about care. And, um, and that I then also wanted to bring back into um, the sort of analytical work that the book is doing. And I think this is something that I'm really interested in and, and that I really try to do. And again, it's a sort of, on the one hand, a work of translation in the sense of sort of making yeah. something available to an audience that doesn't have the time um, or might have not thought about these exactly. things before and so it's translation I think um, a, a lot of the time and but also I, I, I feel really strongly that that this sort of analytical point that there must be a way and there can be a way also to bring together the sort of 
emotional ways in which we live our lives and we make sense of the world, bringing those together with the kind of analytical, more abstract concepts. And that's really what I wanted to do. You absolutely, absolutely do that. And and I'm going to sort of try, I don't know if I'm going to succeed, but I'm going to try and bring together two elements or, or in, in, in conversation with each other just to demonstrate that. Um, the You say brilliantly, you know, that the, the policies of austerity, I mean, even the idea it's an economic policy, but anyway, it's a, a politics of the future perfect. Um, and 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 it's you know that you, you'll have your you'll have your benefits in heaven as it were you know it's hell on earth but but at some point in the future it'll come back to us and in what you demonstrate um, in terms of that the, those hard analytics is is exactly in detail how the current situation is that effectively um, the financialization mechanisms by which uh, the the disastrous divestment is being bought back so the disasters that have been created um, are being bought back and monetized in order to try and fix the problem that was created by the austerity in its first place. And I heard you do a, a, an extremely um, inter- uh, interesting and, and, and very good interview on a, a BBC um, radio program last week, um, where some, where an interlocutor, I do not know, speaking on behalf of whom, um, was confidently saying how much better things were since since care homes and horrible Victorian institutions that we tend to think of in these regards, but you have a much broader sweep. You do you do look at that and you explore it, but you go broader than that, and that's what ties it to the human story that we all recognise, and I'll come back to that. But the proposition was put in a most sort of matter-of-fact form that, but, Emma, we know that things are better um, since these horrible Victorian institutions where people are abandoned um, have been closed down and somehow the market has made things more accessible and comfortable. And you show, you know, that you give the lie to that. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm glad that that I'm glad that that comes across. And and, uh, and I think in um, I was actually quite surprised in in that interview that you mentioned um, that the person was so matter of fact about that. When the, we, there are so many reports of the situation in um, in care homes, in in uh, home care, with things like zero hour contracts and um, no time for people to really be cared for properly things like occupational sick pay not being standard uh, across the, the mm-hmm. sector etc etc and and so the the evidence belies belies that but I think there was also another point that um, that sort of was was being implied there namely that if we have public institutions that they somehow are necessarily these like you know horrible things that are cumbersome where bad things happen and all the bureaucracy and red tape so you know this sort of narrative when we think of um the care crisis uh, and certainly you know for so many of us from our per- personal experience particularly with uh, the the and I'm talking in the context of Britain the democrat the demographics of of, of our population uh, and and what we we loosely refer to and are familiar with referring to as the aging population and 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 you know and you you lay that out very very clearly um, we think about um, the the responsibility the anxiety uh, and indeed the burden and I don't mean that you know that can be on individuals and families and people but also on on what's seen as the public purse um, of um, 
and the purse that hasn't been stolen in the handbag that was already stolen probably margaret thatcher's but anyway uh which you also you know draw a very interesting line through in terms of of of, of approaches to society right from her i think through to cameron and and onwards uh, george osborne but um I we, we think about care homes, we think about how people can be literally looked after and cooked and cleaned and washed and, and, and loved and responded to and, and our human collective responsibility. But in terms of indicating the, the range of your book and also I think it, it, it's really, really important uh, going back to that point about the how you demonstrate the commoditization of, of responsibility um, but also just the the uh, the way that every aspect, the things that we may not see or be aware of, um, I I learned about social impact bonds, um, and I'd sort of seen them referred to here there, and I'd, I'd read a bit, but it, it the, the impact in terms of the day to day life. Of, of, of our basic everyday consumption of, of food it suddenly really really came home to me and um, and the way that they sort of smooth out and uh, and make hazy and whitewash actually um, you know it's financial washing uh, of of, um, of of that um, of, of what you call it's commoditization of self-care and and there are many different aspects to it but I, I really think that in terms of how you you demonstrate and this is an example of how your book works you explain very clearly you translate as you say in your terms what social impact bonds are uh, how and why they were invented how they work uh, both you know objectively fiscally financially and then how they're interpolated into the economy and then right down to how they affect our everyday lives um, just before I uh, came on uh, to talk to you I saw uh, an advertisement um, for uh, Lululemon which is an ethical um, apparently ethically produced clothing company um, and and it had a tagline. I mean, I felt and it made me feel that it, which was what to wear for self care, and and I and since reading your book, I mean, I've read me Roland Barthes, I've read me Marshall McLuhan, I did all that, you know, come come from that sort of not, you know, you and I sort of oversecting that background, but I suddenly realised that I've been able to interpret so many aspects of that not only what gets translated into to self-care and this idea that clean eating is a sort of moral responsibility and ethical responsibility but the levels of anxiety that it produces in us and this sort of notion that this is good citizenship and I think it's really important forgive me I've gone on a bit with that but I think it's really important that um people who know what's on offer from your book understand that uh, that this is very much part of its universe as well as the how we look after our olds and our loved ones and indeed how we are looked after by them either in the home or or, or in care homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, thanks for bringing that up because I think that's one of the things also that I that I'm, I'm I really care about in terms of the the book that it's not as important also and and as central um, the crisis in social care is the book is not only about social care it's about a lot more than that and exactly um, it's the and, whole culture of the concept of 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 self and self betterment and how that can be monetized that's right and, and so stop us from being collective activists make us 
activists in the interest of 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 production of a self and take that energy and labor out of our relationships and responsibilities to each other that's what i get from from reading it mm, absolutely and and so this i so the, the, again the sort of way that personal the personal responsibility um play plays a role there and i think that that's kind of um also something that for me comes out in the in the covid crisis now um where person that one part of personal responsibility and of a sort of economy or a society that personalizes the responsibility for care and makes it something that individuals have to uh, do for themselves is that you know a sense that um, those who who are unable to to do so sort of uh, fall by the wayside um, and also that we sort of carry the burden of, of of responsibility each as an individual when actually we are we live in interdependent lives hmm. um, that's that's one aspect but also I found that this sort of anxiety as well of if you are if you're the only one who's who who can take care of yourself then you also have to make sure that you, that you remain okay right particularly in a world where the only thing you yeah. might have is your capacity to work and so what happens to you if you don't have that capacity to work anymore and how and and also how if you don't have trust in in the government um that uh, then you also have have to find ways to take care of yourself and so there's there's lots of facets of this sort of personal responsibility um that on the one hand there's a sort of whole consumer market for it and um, there's the, the shit that's pushed at us in the first place that's yeah. right that's right um and then there's also the kind of anxiety that underlies it all and that we're never good enough and that we always have to be better and all of that kind of stuff but hey the solution is take better care of yourself don't question the structural conditions of of, uh, the way that the economy functions um, and I think that's also what social impact bonds do they sort of suggest that that individuals can sort of be um, nudged to uh, lead better healthier more productive lives but nobody actually is asking the question of what is causing um, care deficits and the social problems and social inequality in the first place and um, like to shift to your experience of what came out in the process of writing and how you made decisions about that along the way, because we receive your revelations, but you know you've you, you've had them along the way, and perhaps you could tell us um, just maybe an example or one example of, of an unexpected turn or, or some of the surprises that you encountered in the data or behavioural responses. Well, I think the first thing to say is, of course, when you when you write a book, you're not right. You're, you're not writing down what you already know. <laughs> you're, you're always kind of answering a question. Yeah, yeah, you're answering a question, and I always find myself certainly at the limit of what of what I of, of what I'm thinking and knowing. So I'm sort of always pushing myself as well or, or the material is pushing me mm. in, in certain directions so I mean in that in that respect the, the sort of way that I that I went about it is that the material really guided me in 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 one direction or another so in that sense it's not that you know you 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 read a report or an academic paper or do an interview and then you kind of write a summary and slot it in it's it's that it's a sort of constant conversation and feedback of thinking and ah and it goes in that direction and ah okay well that that's important and so really that's kind of the the, the process well certainly that that's how it was for uh for me I think um what I wasn't surprised about but um but I think it's important to mention is just how much wisdom and knowledge uh, there is among people who 
who are cared for and who, and who care and and yeah. and whose and and whose expertise is not um, sufficiently uh, respected and acknowledged. I think that's that's a really important um, important point. Um, I think what surprised me most. Um, really is i mean we've already really spoken spoken about it but the sort of financialization stuff actually and the the ways that the sort of the the turns and 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 windings of the ways in which um a capitalist economy tries to turn things into commodities um and then or how how things are rendered productive and profits are sought like what happens to relationships and feelings in that in that process and how that's done and the ways that this sort of mantra of of cost effectiveness and cost saving yeah. is so deep it's so deep and 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 yet it's it's also not truth you know in 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 any objective way it's not necessary we don't necessarily have to think like that um in terms of how we distribute resources in society and so i think i was surprised at the kind of turns and windings that i uh um that i found out about there because um i yeah i just it, it was Something, a lot of the time it was just really mind mind blowing um and then also just the ways in which uh, again and again you kind of uh, un- uh, uncover just uh, where people are doing what they can and 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 doing their uh, their very best and it's actually that that compassion and sense of responsibility again again and again so it's just sort of all the way, all the ways and places and spaces that i that i found that um that's really Really and in your in your conclusion uh you you offer uh some really um some really sort of solid outcomes and findings and 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 directions for channel and thinking uh so that you know as well as as well as pushing yourself to the edge of I remember somewhere Foucault was always saying, like, I, I don't even know what the question is. The reason I write something is because I'm trying to find out what the question is. Um, and and I think that, uh, you know, we, we start with one version of what we think it is and we end up with another. And of the many things that you raise, again, in a very concise way in your conclusion and suggestion for outcomes, and I really do feel that this should, you know, be required reading, um, is that you also remind us that converse to if you like the sort of you know um pantomime stereotypes uh, and lies actually of 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 what a of a right-wing press or a sort of right-wing cast of mind would would think and i include in that you know unprogressive parties of 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 uh, of labor and conservative uh, conservative and labor in our in our own environment um is um, that the 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 concept and the actualization of the welfare state in Britain has always been a, a debated and uh, and ambivalent. There's been an ambivalence about how to understand it. So this kind of you know this sort of casting of the idea that you know on the right is that you look after yourself and something sort of anything that's kind of so-called centre of left is that is that you're just sort of you know it's a it's a trickle down and that 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 awful sort of neanderthal version but i think with great subtlety you show 
and then lead into the way that other forms of the actualization of, of social democratic structures, including at municipal level in the history of Europe, uh, and indeed we can see earlier examples in America, took form in, in very different ways. So that we, so we, we're so, it's quite right that, you know, we say, well, you know, the NHS is the greatest social experiment in history and so on and so on, but that can sometimes close our minds to actually seeing that there have been broader uh, and, and other places to look for experiment. And I think particularly in this moment where Brexit closes us, closes us in, that, that part of your book is very important in urging us to look to those models elsewhere and that brings me regrettably um to my final question for now for you emma as its author and particularly at this time when we where where even the experience or feeling of sort of sitting alone and producing the, that discourse which is a book can feel even more sort of you know a, um a question of how that relates in a broader context what can a book do when it comes to the need for change it's a very good question <clears throat> i think um uh, i think that a book first of all a book can touch people and i think um as someone who has always loved reading um that I, you know, I've been touched by many people in my life, in my life so far, and I hope I continue to be. Um, and I've also been touched by books that I've read. So I think uh, books can touch people, can explain things, can can make connections, um, can help also to shift perspectives. But I also think a book can give a language and provide arguments. Um, for phenomena that we that we see happening and that we want to talk about, criticize and 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 change. But I also think a book invites a conversation, and that's actually how I envisage the the conclusion. And so to 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 write the conclusion, I was sort of looking at okay, what what are some of the uh, the many proposals that are out there and ideas that 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 people have, um, not to come up with a with a blueprint, but first of all to show that there there is this wealth of uh, of thinking going on, and that also that actually any any solution to the situation that we're in right now has to be democratic and it has to be participatory um, and that's that's really important so I think in a way the book also tries in the in the conclusion to to do that to sort of bring in um, voices and and also offer the the book as a conversation not just to agree with also to disagree with and to to talk about and and, and debate and discuss and and that's really what, you know, what needs to happen. We need to have a debate about the, the value of, of care, but not, not for its own sake, not for the sake of debate, but because we need, we need change for the long haul. So I hope that my book and also many, many others that are, that are being put out right now can, can provide a stepping stone toward that. Amelia Horgan is a writer and researcher from London whose first book, Lost in Work, Escaping Capitalism, will be out with Pluto Press this June. She's currently writing a PhD on feminism and the philosophy of work and has selected an extract of the care crisis to read and discuss. Bringing in the community. In local communities, volunteer networks of community care are increasingly expected to help integrate the different services used by a social care recipient, acting as a kind of connective tissue, taking on a bridging function between public services and the private sphere of the home. Community care can accompany a radical politics that seeks to ensure people's access to care especially those who might not otherwise have that access. 
Yet ideals of community care can also be a pretext for governments to blandish cuts to public expenditure, increasing isolation and vulnerability. Such conflicting meanings make the term community a slippery concept to deploy. Indeed, any use of the term community should come with a disambiguation notice, for it is apt to elicit more questions than definitive circumscriptions. Who constitutes the community? Who is part of any given community and who is not? What norms and values govern a community? What relations of power inform its logics? Is there one community or are communities multiple and even overlapping? Community can be a term of exclusion as well as inclusion, according to whether the idea is to integrate individuals into a common cause or to exclude some people from being part of a group. Referring to communities is often a way of being vague, invoking commonality where there is little little actual interaction between the supposed members of that community, even papering over neglect. In its most general sense, the term community describes experiences, and practices of interdependency on the basis of shared identity, sense of commonality, or common cause. On the one hand, communities can provide care for the purposes of maintaining society and the economy in the face of, unquestioned, restraints on public funding for services, or the rise of new care needs in the face of social change. Community caring can serve to maintain social cohesion without necessarily questioning existing relations of power or the systemic dynamics and structural inequalities producing rising care needs. Appeals to community caring can obfuscate welfare state retrenchment, masking both the dismantling of social entitlements and the deprofessionalisation of care, as sociologists Heiner Habner and Silk van Dyck have argued. On the other hand, appeals to collective care can also be a central rallying cry of grassroots social movements and a point of departure for resistance and radical change. Such movements build a sense of collectivity and confront the injustices of existing conditions for care while organising care for those who need it. Not only are self-help groups, in mental health for instance, often much better at providing certain kinds of care and support than professionalised top-down services, but these grassroots social movements often create alternative structures through which people can sustain their livelihood without having to purchase increasingly expensive commodities. Silvia Federici calls these self-reproducing movements. Activist traditions of collective self-help and self-organisation are important terrains of transformation, where people come together to help one another out of need, but also to do things on their own terms and challenge exclusion, marginalisation and maltreatment, while seeking to generate possibilities for a greater decommodification through collective mutual aid. For minority groups or in situations of scarcity, collective care is often less a matter of choice than of survival. In light of all of this, we have to ask, what might a form of collective care look like that defied privatisation, eschewed financialization, actively confronted the dismantling of social rights and questioned structural inequalities, as opposed to simply plugging gaps in, in social provision? As summarised by a trade union report from 1984 called Cashing In On Care, real care in the community would mean, quote, choice about how and where to live, better and more flexible support services for those being cared for at home and for those undertaking the care, using new and existing resources differently and more effectively, with workers having more control over the range, quality and running of services, and an end to people being hidden away in forgotten, isolated institutions. The task remains ongoing. While I was collecting my thoughts on this section, I had to phone up my mobile provider about a billing issue. After that call, I received a text asking me to fill in a survey. 
The survey asked, amongst other things, on a scale of 1 to 10, was I satisfied with the care they had shown me? In such hands, care becomes a weapon of workplace control. What I found fascinating about this interaction was the way in which concepts like care, and as Emma Darling describes in the section I've just read from, community can be mobilised for a huge variety of political goals and tendencies. She uses Foucault's term, tactical polyvalence, in a later section about self-care, describe this multiplicity of meanings and particularly how ideas of community and society can be used in the legitimation of austerity, in the destruction of the state's capacity to care. Firstly, such concepts might include particular exclusions, say of particular groups like migrants from the notion of community or of those out of work on benefits. And secondly, such notions can imply or reinforce particular regimes and institutions of social reproduction, the family, the voluntary sector, customer care in the market, and so on. As Darling explains so clearly and poignantly in the book, it was a particular account of community that was used to dismantle caring institutions. Moreover, these competing visions of care and of community can create different subjects that experience care in different ways, different kinds of care, or social reproduction or experiences appropriate, pleasant, enjoyable or embarrassing, unacceptable, shameful and so on. Early on in the passage I just read from, Darling describes how the expectation of care within families and by friends can put strains on relationship, even jeopardise the providing of that care itself. This is well known. Everyone has seen, directly or indirectly, the difficulties of unpaid care and its gender dynamics. They can see that the, diff- that the difficulties that that cause causes and yet familial or intimate care remains the gold standard of care. The writer able to draw on this grab bag of associations that come with notions like care and community and the left must be wary of the ways in which such terms can be captured for ideological purposes but this isn't to say that we shouldn't use them just that we should take care on using them to be aware of those associations. As Dowling persuasively suggests that in that passage and throughout that book, we can rebuild that lost caring capacity using the spirit of collective movements to reimagine how we care for each other, building new collective institutions, democratically run and publicly owned, perhaps shaped by workers and those receiving care, with those institutions allowing for the development of human potential that comes with living with interdependence rather than packaging people into groups of caregivers and care receivers. In short, contesting care and community through reimagining the forms through which we relate to each other. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Verso podcast. To purchase The Care Crisis or any of our books, please go to www.versobooks.com where you'll find offers, reading lists, blog posts and more, as well as details on how to sign up for our book club memberships.